a perfect family. I will not begin with my origins, wild and wasted years which bear no significance to the story. Simply know that I was naive and narrow-minded, as men of my kind are raised to be. Instead, I will begin during the summer of 1894. I had found some small level of success as a doctor in my town, the name of which I shall not divulge out of respect. It was a small town, and as such it wasn't hard to gain a reputation. I was well respected, and enjoyed the company of many of my community, rich and poor alike. Stories of my talents as a diagnostician and surgeon garnered me much respect among my colleagues and neighbours. For this, I was considered quite the eligible young bachelor, and attracted the attention of countless women. But my heart beat only for one. Her name was Winifred Lawton, daughter of Dirk Lawton, the wealthiest man in the county. I shall always remember the first time I laid eyes on her, the moment her golden hair and easy smile met my eyes, I was completely lost. I had always heard people speak of love and thought I understood it, but faced with the sublime vision that stood before me, I realized I knew nothing. It was like I'd discovered a secret that was hidden in plain sight and had joined a private cabal that truly knew the meaning of the word. I felt naked, and all my confidence suddenly evaporated. But when she finally saw me, she smiled kindly, warmly, and I was ensnared. A year passed before we married. As a wedding gift, her father gave to us a house on the edge of town, not so far away that we couldn't enjoy the hustle and bustle of day-to-day -day life when we chose but far enough away that we could benefit from the peace of the natural scenery around us. When I close my eyes, I can still see the sun setting over the fields from my bedroom window, and it warms me to my bones on colder nights. We were inseparable from the moment we married. Every day I would go to work and count down the time until I would be able to see her again. My attention would be diverted during less urgent consultations, I would often skip invitations to socialize after hours so that I could race home to be with her. And when I arrived, she would lavish such affection upon me that it felt like I was the only man in the world. To have such attention focused on you like that is a heady and intoxicating thing. The simplest thing in the world, yet elusive to all but a sacred few. Were it tangible, I would have prescribed it to all my patients. We would attend parties together, and it was often commented how we were the very vision of love. Yet, the conversation would always inevitably move on to talk of children. Neither of us had wanted children right away, if ever, happy as we were with our situation. So we would smile, give a vague answer, and politely skirt the issue. But after three years of marriage, the decision was made for us, and Winnie found herself with child. I took responsibility for my wife's care all through her pregnancy, 
and I often found myself afraid for her welfare. It was a troubled pregnancy, and I stayed up long nights just watching over her. With each kick that rumbled in her belly, I held my breath, for it seemed to come with intent to harm. I could not stand the thought of any damage to befall her, and I ended up fearing our child before it was even born. At moments when she was well, we stole ourselves away, intent on taking full advantage of our last days as merely a couple. We sat and savoured one another. There was no need to speak, for we simply drank each other in, enjoying the silence, the feeling of our hands on each other's skin. The end of spring arrived, and the time came. However, I found that all my months of fretting, planning, and worrying were all for naught. Indeed, Winnie was so strong she almost didn't need my help at all. It was a long labor, but it found its match in my Winifred. And then she was here, our beautiful baby girl, already the image of her mother. She barely cried at all, but sniffed the air like she was curious of the world and hungry to consume everything within it. I had overseen many births, but this time I was utterly enraptured. This time she was mine. To see my daughter before me made me utterly ashamed for ever having fear of her. There was a change in Winnie, too. The instant that babe was placed in her arms, my beloved was transformed as clear to me as if her hair had changed colour or she had sprouted a second nose. There was joy in her, and something more, beyond joy, something beyond my comprehension. She was besotted, and it erased any fatigue she may have endured from the labour. And so, our duo became a trio. We named the girl Harriet, after Winifred's late mother, and she and Winnie settled into a routine quickly. As I attended to them at home, I never once saw Winnie's eyes leave the girl, nor a smile leave her lips. I could hear her speaking constantly or singing to the child when I was in other rooms. Before long, I had to return to my practice again. The time away had flown by and it pained me to part with them, but I was gratified that Winifred was more than happy to be alone with Harriet. Indeed, when I would return home in the evenings, I would find them both still in the full throes of bliss, so much so that certain attentions in the housework were neglected, and I would return home to find that dinner had not been prepared. But to Winnie, nothing was too much for our little Harriet, so much so that Winifred's own health had begun to decline. She had been prioritizing all her care to our child, and as much as I admired her intentions, she was still not fully restored from the labour, and the effort of nursing drained her more daily. Her features became ashen and bloodless, so we all became support for one another. Mother devoted to child, and I to mother. Though if Winnie noticed my efforts, she didn't acknowledge it. The child thrived, though, and the bond between mother and daughter only grew deeper with each passing day. Indeed, by the age of two, little Harriet was so much the image of her mother that it was often the first thing people would say when they cast eyes upon her. 
The love between Winnie and I now had a different shape. We would sometimes steal a few moments together to try and be as we once were, but these were rare. And whenever we did, the conversation would inevitably and decisively turn to the subject of Harriet. I could see that my wife's heart belonged to our daughter. Every moment she could, she spent in Harriet's company. Her spirit was now prone to falter at times when she was separated from the child. Every social occasion was lost to a black cloud of melancholy, and eventually Winnie stopped coming out altogether. As the girl grew older, their bond did not diminish, and I will confess I found myself jealous of it. It was a bond I used to know. Winnie even began dressing the two of them in the same outfits. Clean dresses, identical in all but size. Often when I would return home from work, I'd find the two of them huddled in Harriet's nursery, whispering to one another conspiratorially, as if afraid to be overheard. And when they saw me approach, a silence would overcome them. Those silences had the power to fill the house. At one point, I had grown weary of my and Winnie's lack of time together, and I made arrangements with her father for him to take the child for a night in order for Winnie and I to have an evening to ourselves. When I told this to Winnie, she cried, but both Dirk and I reassured her that she would have nothing to worry about. I made all the arrangements, including procuring a new outfit for her, which, when the evening came, she did not wear. Winnie made some efforts to enjoy herself, but in everything we did, she was distracted, and I found myself irked by the whole situation. I simply wanted her to smile at me the way she used to. Regardless, I tried to make the best of the evening. When we collected Harriet early the next morning, Winnie almost ran into her father's house, and she and Harriet immediately shared a lengthy embrace, their connection re-established. However, when I extended my arms to the girl, she simply stood unmoving, with a look of utter contempt on her face. There was one scorching hot day, whereupon returning home I did not find them in the nursery, or the drawing room, or any other cool room of the house. Instead, I found both of them at the far end of the garden, exposed beneath the blazing sun, staring at the ground. Both of their necks and faces were becoming a deepening pink. When I approached, I saw that they were staring at the body of a dead rat, drying out in the sun. Its head was missing, and flies were entering the empty neck cavity, which had shrunken and turned a rusty color in the heat. They showed no emotion as they looked, nor did they make a sound. I ushered them both out of the blistering heat and away from the macabre sight. They complied without comment and made their way indoors, but there was something about the situation that gnawed in the pit of my stomach. As a result of our evening together, we soon discovered that Winnie was with child again, after my worry over her first pregnancy and seeing how defiantly she saw through the birth, I decided this time to fret less. Indeed, she even seemed more at ease this time. She would share every facet with Harriet, as if the baby was for the two of them. Harriet was now six, 
and was entranced by the prospect of a new addition. She would press her ear to her mother's stomach for any hint of a sound, or for the feel of the tiniest movements. The two of them would sing songs to it that I had never heard. Harriet would even protect her mother and soon-to-be sibling from others, not allowing them to come close. Sometimes she even directed this towards me, and refused me to approach Winnie. She was so resolute in her determination to protect her, that it wouldn't be until Winnie said to her it was alright, and I would be allowed to pass. As it transpired, my more sedate approach to the pregnancy was a grave error. This time, the labour was more severe and problematic, and no matter how resilient or strong she was, no amount of fighting spirit was going to see her through. Winnie had opted to have the baby at home, but it wasn't long before I wished I had taken her to the hospital. More than once, I thought we would lose her or the baby or both. She bled so copiously that I almost lost my control of the situation for panic of losing her. But after many savage hours, on a rain-lashed night, our little Sophie was born. As expected, the severe blood loss caused numerous complications after the birth, and for several weeks, Winnie's fate was uncertain. She was severely anemic, and in her weakened state she developed a fever. She would often slip in and out of consciousness and delirium, but in moments when she was lucid and could speak, it would always be to ask for Harriet and Sophie to be with her. Harriet would not leave her side no matter what, and nothing I could say or do would move her. She did not want Sophie to be moved either. Indeed, whenever I would take the baby away, or place her down in her crib to sleep, I would soon find that her sister had crept in and taken the baby to her mother's side. I tended Winnie as much as I could, working under the cold gaze of my own daughter as if being chaperoned. I am convinced, however, that she was mended far before I was aware. For one evening I woke after having fallen asleep in a chair in the sitting room downstairs, and upon waking, I heard whispering coming from the bedroom where my wife lay. Given that Winnie's condition left her unable to maintain conversation or consciousness for more than a few minutes during the day, at first I felt it must have been Harriet speaking aloud to herself, but there were definitely two voices coming from that room. An ease crept over me, and I raised myself from my seat silently creeping as gently as I could across the hall to the stairs. Here, I could hear the voices more distinctly, and there was now no doubt that there were two separate speakers whispering in the room above. I placed one foot on the first step softly, willing myself to be as stealthy as possible. Winnie's room was on the left and would have been visible from the stairwell as I crossed over the threshold onto the first floor. All I needed was to see. I could not explain why I wished to look into that room so covertly, nor what I thought I would find when I looked in. But the dread that had been building for so long had overtaken me, and I needed to see, to dispel, or confirm any thoughts I may have had. But all my slyness was betrayed, as I set my foot upon the seventh step, 
and an incriminating creak resounded through the still air. The whispers died at once, and no other sound followed. The need for stealth was now gone, and I ascended the last few stairs without pretense. As Winnie's room came into view, I saw that she was asleep. The baby lay next to her, sleeping just as soundly. Harriet was sat on the cushioned window bench beside her mother's bed, and was staring out of the door at me with no expression. I am ashamed to say that, at that moment, I was vividly afraid. Through trembling lips, I managed to force out, Is everything all right, darling? For what felt like minutes, Harriet said nothing, and simply continued to sit there in the dress that so closely matched the version her mother owned, and stare at me unfalteringly. Then her eyes shifted to her sleeping mother for a second or two, before fixing back on me, and she nodded. The professional in me would have thought it wise to check on my patient, ensure that she was fine and resting comfortably, but I would not have entered that room that night for anything in this world. Instead, I merely nodded in response, said goodnight, and went to the guest room in which I had been staying since Winnie fell ill. I closed the door behind me, and in my weakness I locked it. I pressed my ear to the door and held my breath, listening for any other hint of conversation happening in the room beyond. For a while there was nothing, before I heard the sharp click of the other door closing. In time, Winifred returned to health, or at least deigned to include me on her wellness. For all the drama of her birth, the baby was healthy, and seemed to be developing as if there had been no disruption to her first few weeks. The three ladies in my house were now totally inseparable and seemed perfectly in unison with one another. The room I had taken during Winifred's illness had now become my permanent residence. We took meals at separate times, kept separate schedules, and when I finally returned to work, I could usually depart before seeing anyone else in the house. When I would arrive back, there had been no indication that anyone had moved around in the house at all. I felt like an unwanted guest in my own home. Once her strength had returned and I found the opportunity to do so, I managed to speak with Winnie alone. I had come to try and find some hint of a connection between us again. But she was now so unlike the woman I had met, it was hard to know where to begin. I floated the idea of sending Harriet away to boarding school, to help develop her education and socialise more. Winifred rejected the idea outright, and as soon as she had finished speaking, she became taciturn and distant. My efforts were for naught. Time passed. The behaviours between Winifred and Harriet now grew to include Sophie, all three of them the spitting images of each other, an effect that was intensified by their predilection for dressing and matching outfits, a habit that once was charming to me, but now elicited no other emotion than disgust. I could hear the songs and conversations coming from their rooms, but as soon as they would become aware of my presence, they would stop, 
and all animation would cease. The worst was the disquieting silence, as if some secret were being kept from me. My suspicions rose to maddening levels, so that one day when the girls were all out in the garden, I decided to search Harriet's room. I don't know what I was expecting to find among the toys and books, but all my instincts willed me forward. In the bottom drawer of her dresser were three small wooden boxes, like jewelry boxes but narrower. I opened the first and immediately shrank back, crying out loud enough to fear I would be discovered. In the box, on a neatly folded handkerchief, were three tiny skulls, which must have belonged to rats or mice. They were old. There was no trace of any skin or fur left upon them. Or perhaps, I thought, they have been boiled to remove their skin. I clasped the lid back onto the box and looked at the others. I did not need to open these other boxes, for I knew that their contents would be much the same. What had been happening in my home? I was outraged. My first thought was to storm downstairs, take Harriet by the arm and demand an explanation for this deviance. I made to leave the room, but then stopped short, immediately knowing that if I were to confront the girl, her mother would likely intervene, and all my ire would be deflected back at me by that united front. Instead, I stood in that child's room, paralyzed by indecision, impotent, and powerless. We had long stopped visiting parties, and now we had no guests to the house. I willed my working hours to last longer, and in time I took myself to visiting the local bars in the evenings, so I would not have to go home. It didn't take long for the drink to take hold and become a welcome escape, blurring the vision of those identical, doll-like dresses and heavy blonde curls. This went on for many months, my reputation and practice both began to suffer. It was on a particularly indulgent evening that I was visited in my usual watering hole by Winifred's father. The sight of this kindly old man in this place, with such a look of disappointment in his regard of me, was nearly enough to sober me on the spot. He told me of his utter contempt for my ungentlemanly conduct and for my neglect of my duties as a husband and a father. I could have told him my reasons, but even as I formulated a response in my mind, those reasons sounded ridiculous. That I was an outcast in my home, that I was afraid of my own children, a nine-year-old and an infant. What kind of a man did that make me? He told me that he had paid for a room at the inn for me tonight so I could sleep off the drink and not disgrace myself in front of the girls. In the morning he would come with me back to the house, and he would talk with Winifred in order to address our family problems. I gave no word of resistance and thanked him, feeling more than a little ashamed of my intoxication. I had a troubled and restless sleep, and the next day 
I woke to a calamitous headache that rendered me almost immobile. But in keeping with my promise, I forced myself up and out onto the street, ready to meet with my father-in-law. Every bump of the journey in the trap and pony nauseated me. It made my brain feel as though it was sliding between two walls. Dirk was speaking, but I never made out a single thing he said. I simply nodded and tried to keep from disgracing myself further by vomiting over the side. I was gratified when we finally reached the house. I fumbled for my keys, but Dirk had already produced his own and was striding confidently towards the front door. I ambled behind him. We found all three girls in the sitting room as we entered. Their faces held in an expression of curiosity, but no trace of concern or worry that I had been away the whole night. I sat down onto a couch and sighed at the mercy of being able to rest on a seat that wasn't moving. Daughter, Mr. Lawton said, you and I must speak. She motioned for him to come through into the study. Little Sophie followed. Harriet, however, had disappeared. I closed my eyes for a moment, and when I opened them again, she was stood before me, with a glass of water and a pill in her hands. She showed them to me and placed them on the table. I was startled at this display of consideration and thanked her. She merely nodded and walked away to join the others in the study. I realized all of them were now looking at me, and I felt a fresh wave of shame. Could it be that after all this, I was the problem after all? I cursed myself as Harriet shut the study door, and picking up the pill from the table, I swallowed it with the water, believing it to be a baptism of sorts. In purging this pain from my head, I was resolving to try harder and do better for my family in the future. My eyes felt heavy. I leaned my head upon a cushion on the arm of the sofa, and before I knew it, drifted off into the most absolute sleep I had experienced in a long time. Something was wrong. I could hear rain, loud enough that it woke me. With an effort, I opened my eyes and was shocked to see that it was dark outside. Surely I could not have slept for that long. I tried to move, but my muscles were sluggish and unwilling. The pain in my head had not abated despite the pill, and my clothes were clinging to me as though wet. Something was definitely wrong. There was a copper smell in the air, one I recognized from countless classes and surgeries, and that's when panic struck. I forced my powerless limbs into action and pushed myself up from the couch, but as I did so, something fell from my lap onto the hardwood floor with a clang. I reached down to find what had fallen, but pulled my hand away immediately at feeling the sharp edge and cold steel of the knife blade, wet and sticky blood. There was blood spread out across the floor. My heart pounded so hard it threatened to burst through my temples. 
I tried to call out Winifred's name, although I cannot be certain that I made any cogent sound, and I stumbled on half-functioning legs out of the sitting room. The girls? Where were they? And Dirk? The blood formed a trail leading up the stairs, and I followed as fast as I could. At one point I slipped, and as I looked down to refine my footing, I noticed that my clothes and hands were also mottled with blood. My thoughts went back to the knife that had fallen from my lap, and my stomach lurched. I hurried up the stairs, following the streaks and droplets of blood, and to my horror, I found that they led to Harriet's room. Without a care for any peril that may have lay within, I plunged through the door and screamed at what I found. The rocking horse struggled to hold up the weight of Dirk's oversized limp body, which had been tied to it with unkind and rough knots, tangling him in an unnatural position, looking as if he wanted to fall, but would never be able to. His clothes were drenched in crimson, still wet, but had been on him long enough that much of it had started to dry. Most sickeningly of all, his hands and his head were missing. The amount of blood sprayed around the room meant that he was alive when they were taken, and the jagged cuts along the wounds spoke to the agony these evils caused. I have seen all manner of things in my time as a doctor, but I am not ashamed to admit that, at that moment, I was seized by a shock that paralyzed me and stole all capacity for coherent thought. All I could do was stare at the headless, handless horseman before me, at the blood splattered across the walls, the curtains and the toys. I looked to the pile of Harriet's dolls stacked high on the bed, with all of their blank white faces staring back at me, and at their centre, another face, one that didn't belong. His eyes and mouth were open, the tongue lolled from his lips. At the sight of him I cried out, but the scream gave way to a choking, dry heave. My head was swimming, my body trembling. I wanted to get out. I needed to. I averted my eyes from that macabre sight and fled onto the landing, clasping the banister with increasingly whitening knuckles. I believe it was the only thing holding me up. Between the shaking gulps of breath I drew in, I looked up across the landing. The door to my wife's room was open. A flickering lamp shone within, and I could see little Sophie stood within the opening, staring at me. My first instinct was to run to her to make sure she was alright, but I found myself unable to. There was no need, as Harriet appeared behind her sister, looking out at me also. He's seen, was all she said. At that, Winnie appeared behind both children, creating the effect of some perverse totem pole. It was at the sight of my wife that the chills ran all over my body, for there stood a woman I did not recognize. Her face, her eyes, all alien to me. Are you... are you all okay? 
I said stupidly. They did not respond, but merely opened the door fully and moved into the hallway, like a flock of birds emerging to consume an ensnared prey. They were all dressed in matching attires once more, this time in white. Skirts that fell over their hips and stopped at their ankles, and blouses with the hems trimmed in black. They looked like pure snow, surrounded by all this blood. Untouched by all this blood. Husband, what have you done? Winnie said calmly. Winnie, I said in a voice that betrayed the waiting tears behind my eyes. I think we need to fetch someone. There's blood on you, father, said Harriet. I looked at my clothes and self-consciously wiped at my hands, but that only served to spread the blood more. What have you done? Winnie said again. And suddenly everything became clear, coming into focus slowly. The nightmare to which I had awoken was far more terrible than I knew. I had fallen into a trap, and there was no way I could imagine out of it. You... You all did this, I said, but the words sounded feeble as they left my lips. I didn't. I couldn't. You and Grandpa quarreled last night. Sophie's voice was quiet but sure. He told us so. At the inn, where you have been most nights drinking yourself into stupor, Winnie added. I shook my head but to do so caused agony in my brain, cutting like a knife. What did you give me, Harriet? But Harriet remained silent, settling merely to stare at me with a disdain that I couldn't imagine a child could ever hold towards their father. You drugged me. They moved as one down the stairs, unfazed by the blood trail that pooled throughout their path. At first I stayed where I was, unable to move, afraid to face the ghastly scene of my father-in-law's murder, nor the faces of my family. I gathered what courage I could, and followed them down. They waited for me at the bottom. Their soulless eyes looked black in the gloom of the room, and each eye was staring at me. Why? My voice was a whisper. Father did it, said Sophie. The blood from the knife was on his hands, added Harriet. He and my father quarreled. Out of Christian kindness, my father brought him home, but in a fury brought on by the drink and his own shame, he became angry and attacked my father. The voices sounded distressed, even believable, but the expressions never changed. Once he was done, he opened the door he had locked us in. He was covered in blood and had rage in his eyes, as if he wished to do the same to us. But instead, by some miracle, he dropped the knife and ran out into the night, Winnie continued. Winnie, why? My voice sounded desperate. I said her name but there was no possibility that this monster before me was Winifred Lawton. 
he dropped the knife and ran out into the night, Sophie echoed. He dropped the knife and ran out into the night, Harriet repeated. I felt as if I should faint, but those things kept chorusing those words over and over. They were right. People would have seen Dirk come to me in anger last night, see me drinking my unhappiness away every possible night for months. When I woke up, the knife was in my lap, if not in my hand. I was covered in blood, and they were not. And no one would believe that a woman and her two child daughters would conceivably be able to carry out an act so barbarous as the scene of the slaughter upstairs. He dropped the knife and ran out into the night. What other choice did I have? They had laid their trap perfectly. And I, whether from the drugging or because the situation was so, could not see another way out of it. I stared around what was my home, looked over what was my family. None of them looked like creatures of this earth. I swear now that no demon could ever strike fear into my heart, for I have already seen the faces of evil. He dropped the knife and ran out into the night. I turned my back on them all and ran. It has been years since that night, but still I run. To this day I am a wanted man. Once or twice I found news of the girls. Dirk left to them his entire fortune, and they found a new home, further away from the town, but where I couldn't say. They had wished to free themselves from any outside forces, and now they had all they wished, with funds sufficient to never have to worry about work again. All it took was to murder one man and completely destroy the life of another. Many nights I wake sharply, dreaming that they have found me. They sneak through the night ready to savage me in the same way they had my father-in-law. I had become just another rat to them. But when I see where I am now, hunted by the law, cold and drifting from town to town, with nothing but the memories of the happiness I once had, I can't help but wonder if I wouldn't welcome it.